listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 233. It's Striketober, or that's what some commentators have been calling it, with massive strike votes being taken across industries and ongoing strikes all over the country, as an exhausted working class is tired of being taken for granted and left out to dry or, in some cases, die. We will talk today about some of those strikes, as well as the reform struggle going on within the iconic United Auto Workers. But first, the news. I am recording this from Massachusetts, where I have just spent the morning at the St. Vincent Hospital strike headquarters because the nurses, members of the Massachusetts Nurses Association, are still on the picket lines eight months after they first walked off the job. At issue, still, is the permanent replacement of some 15% of the workforce, including many of the leaders and bargaining committee members. I sat down with two of those strike leaders to talk about why they're still out. So let me get you both to introduce yourselves sure. into it so we have voices you, on. Is it okay with you if I call this? Yeah, one? yeah, that's fine. Okay. That's fine. Triple vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only double, but. <laughs> so, my name is um, Marie Wataco, and uh, I am uh, a member of the negotiating committee at St. Vincent Hospital. Uh, my name is Dominique Muldoon. Um, I'm co chair, uh, member of the negotiating committee at St. Vincent Hospital. Excellent. So, um, yeah, so I'm back in back in Worcester Welcome after <laughs> quite a few months, and we're still out. So, and there's been a lot of uh, sort of news about people putting pressure on tenant and politicians saying get it together. But where are we right now? You know, we're at a point now where we um, pretty much came to an agreement on everything, but, you know, uh, one issue, um, uh, uh, pay raise, uh, uh, a bonus that they wanted to do that we felt was illegal. Mm -hmm. But we had agreed on the staffing. This is back in August. Um, We're ready to sign off. And it wasn't everything we wanted, um, you know, but... Both sides compromised, and we thought that we had a, you know, tentative agreement that we could go back to, and the hospital decided not to allow all of us return to our jobs, mm-hmm. um, which basically blew up the deal. Yeah. Um, so for the last, we have not been able to, um, you know, this has never happened in this state. Um, yeah. It's never happened in a nursing uh, strike in this state at all, and certainly... Uh, you know, we have highly um, expertise nurses that have been, you know, the jobs have been given to novice nurses mm-hmm. who are not going to be able to keep the patients safe. Yeah. Um, it's a We went out on strike for safety. We went out for staffing because it was unsafe. Yeah. And for us to return um, while they're implementing this unsafe um, policy would just be hypocritical. Everyone needs to return to their former positions, and we need to have expert nurses in those positions. Yeah. Yeah, Tenant has really dug in on this one. I think it's um, really transparent what they're trying to do. Uh, They're trying to send a message to other unionized nurses and probably non-unionized nurses Mm -hmm. in their other hospitals. Um, However, this is a situation where we have dug in also. Uh, We feel we have the moral high ground on this. This is an unprecedented um, uh, action that they've taken. Um, What they're doing is um, absolutely, um, without a doubt, 
uh, just um, merciless. Yeah. You know, patients are being harmed every day, every day longer that they keep us out here. Yeah. Um, we know that we're on the right side of this. This has implications for the labor movement nationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this is being watched closely by other unions, yeah. not only in the United States, but abroad internationally. Yeah. Uh, this is too important for us to um, give in. We can't give in on this. You know, our best weapon although they ignore everything, is just staying out on the street, finding employment in the meantime elsewhere to be able to last one day longer than they can. Yeah, yeah. talk a little bit about that. What are the implications for this if they manage to, you know, squeeze out some people by permanently replacing? Sure. I mean, it's, it's just uh, unthinkable. Can you imagine if nurses cannot, without fear, stand up and advocate for the safety of their patients... What do we have? You know, our power is our unity. And so we we feel that, you know, that this has been uh, laid on our shoulders, but we take the fight on um, earnestly and seriously, and uh, we are not wavering. It is way too important to the labor movement, way too important to our patients for nurses to give in to this corporate beast. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. I know you've got letters of support from other tenant hospitals, from workers at other tenant hospitals, but, you know, yeah, a little bit more about this this company that's still holding out. And I mean, they're a company that received almost $3 billion in CARES Act stimulus money yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic, and they proceeded to furlough nurses out the door at St. Vincent Hospital. They did this across the country. Yeah. They furloughed thousands of uh, tenant nurses across the country, rather than keeping those hands at the bedside to ensure that patients received the care that they desperately needed. Um, and that that's how they were able to, um, you know, triple their share prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they are beholden to their shareholders. Clearly, they have a mission. And so do we. And it's to take the best care that we possibly can of patients and to stand up and say when that's not happening. So in terms of the deal that, that you had that they then... Um, are not holding to in good faith. Um, what was the agreement reached on staffing in that? Because, I mean, that would presumably require them to do some hiring in any case, right? Right. I mean, we certainly didn't achieve every element of our original proposals, Mm -hmm. but we felt in the middle of August when we met with them, I think it was four consecutive days, Mm -hmm. that, you know, it was incumbent upon us um, as caretakers that we had to get back into that building. And we looked at what we had achieved and decided it was sufficient, Mm -hmm. that we had had significantly improved the safety in that building. And uh, so we accepted their last best and final offer, barring their, you know, illegal bonus for the uh, strike breakers. Mm. Um, But they, you know, quickly uh, decided that they would trample over that and uh, move on with their next agenda, which is to crush our union. Yeah, we had, you know, agreed to a mix of fours and fives. That's four and five patients per nurse. Yes. And, you know, there was some leeway with, you know, a resource nurse and the numbers being what they are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for both sides to reach a compromise. And, you know, the ability for nurses to make decisions on how to do assignments, if an assignment had patients that were more sick than others, you know, we could give that nurse less patients. Mm -hmm. And it just would increase safety so much more. It would help patient care. Uh, it would allow us to meet the standard of 
care and also give good quality care. Mm-hmm. And while it wasn't everything that we felt that we uh, wanted, we knew that we could go back in that building and provide um, better care for our patients. So, yeah, we've seen in the meantime, while you all have been out on strike, we've seen other nurses strike, other hospital strikes. Um, we've got some that are still ongoing. Like we mentioned Mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got this massive vote taken in, in California and up the West Coast at Kaiser Permanente. Um, what do you what advice do you have for other <laughs> nurses and hospital workers who are looking at this moment and going like we can't take it anymore? Uh, advice. Um, you're on the right track. Um, your unity is your power. You speak with one voice and you speak for the patient. Uh, the issues are incredibly similar. Yeah. You know, we lived through the uh, worst healthcare crisis of our professional lives. Um, and we know that if we don't stand up for ourselves, no one will. Yeah. Uh, corporatized healthcare is, you know, I want to say simply it's evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be uh, profiteering off of the backs of patients is just immoral, in my view. Uh, and all of these all of this labor unrest essentially revolves around that issue, which is lack of appropriate staffing, lack of PPE, Mm -hmm. lack of respect. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has come to a head. You know, I think professional nurses have realized across this country that now is the time uh, to speak out with one voice um, and do it not only for our patients, but for our profession, for ourselves um, and for future nurses. You know, definitely, I would say that standing together, um, you know, there's thousands of nurses in this country and standing together on an issue, we can make positive change. So I think that, you know, the nurses out West are on the right track, um, you know, and that is the most important thing is that nurses are starting to come together. Um, You know, we didn't get into nursing to learn how to work an assembly line. You know, we take care of patients and that takes time. And in order to do a good job and to retain nurses and keep them at the bedside, we have to have what we need for working conditions and to provide safe care. That was Marie Ritaco and Dominique Muldoon, nurses at St. Vincent Hospital and members of the Massachusetts Nurses Association. This month was dubbed Striketober due to all of the work stoppages that had either happened or been threatened. But last weekend, one of the most anticipated industrial actions was thwarted by an 11th hour deal between the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, that's the union representing many of the craft workers on television and stage productions, and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents big television and film studios. So the massive strike, which would have involved tens of thousands of craft workers and disrupted many major productions, was averted, though not everyone is sure that the tentative agreement, which has yet to be voted on by members, is worth it. The agreement provides some changes to the current scheduling rules to extend resting hours on the weekend and between shifts, and also provides a boost to wages over a three-year period, but it falls short of the workers' demands. Workers would get a weekend of 54 hours under this deal. That might sound odd, but this is because the hours in this industry are so incredibly long that the contract actually stipulates the hours that you don't work rather than the hours that you do. The 54-hour break is designed to stop the studios from making the crew work all Friday into Saturday. The contract would mandate a 10-hour turnaround between shifts as well, which means you can end a 14-hour workday and then be required to report to work again 10 hours later. 
This was a point of controversy in the contract because while this would help the workers who currently have a turnaround time of just eight or nine hours, most members already have a 10-hour turnaround, so not much would change about their day-to-day work schedule. The pending agreement also increases the so-called meal penalty, or extra money that the employer must pay if the worker ends up working through a regularly designated meal break. The series of escalating penalties would stay the same for the first several hours, but after eight hours, the meal penalty goes from $12.50 to $25 an hour. While this would address the most severe violations, according to Variety, most of the meal days that workers experience fall under a shorter time frame and so will not qualify for the enhanced penalties. So there's already a lot of pushback to these provisions on social media, and it's not clear whether members will actually approve this agreement in the pending vote. I spoke with Sarah Mae Gunther, a camera assistant with IATSE Local 600. She supports the deal, though acknowledges it doesn't provide everything that members had hoped for, and she also reflected on how the pandemic has forced many members to reevaluate their relationship to their jobs. I mean, I think that it definitely comes close to what I was hoping for. It checks every one of the boxes of the um, our task list that we had. We had five items that we were gunning for, and we successfully seem to have gotten at least recognition in each of those categories. Um, so that is fulfilling. Uh, it's definitely taken some getting used to for, I think, quite a few members within our union, which has created a bit of a fissure. Um, but I think it's primarily based on misunderstanding um, or lack of knowledge. There's a lot of people, I think, that went into the strike uh, or, you know, the pre- preparation for strike, hoping that the outcome would be absolutely everything in their dreams, um, but not necessarily knowing fully what we're fighting for or what is even realistic within the labor union. Um, so there's a lot of people, I think, that were hoping for things that they felt personally shafted by, but were unaware of exactly what, you know, what we were seeking and what needed to be thought in order to actually make some significant gain, which I do believe that we've made. And can you, can you give an example of maybe some, uh, what you think is a misunderstanding? I think I've seen some social media uh, complaints about things like the 10 hour turnaround and, and other things like that. Oh, certainly. There's lots of people that were very upset about the fact that we had increased the turnaround from 10 hours to at least 12 hours. You know, Werner Herzog has a huge 12 on 12 off campaign and people were definitely super forlorn um, that we weren't fighting for that. But they're not taking into fat, into consideration the fact that, you know, we're 13 unions, uh, individ, ind- we are 13 independent unions that are bargaining together, two of which didn't even have a 10 hour turnaround uh, to begin with. One of them had no turnaround and one of them was still rocking a solid eight hour turnaround, which is just straight up abuse. So, you know, I'd say that it is a significant gain that we have a fine and firm answer nationally on that, because it's definitely a question when you start traveling into different jurisdictions, how much turnaround um, is going to be afforded to you. And I mean, if nothing else, it's a basis and it's a basis to build on. It's been significant turmoil, but I think that as the week has progressed, you know, from the day that we got the news of what things were going to be, it does seem as if people are starting to become more understanding and realize the true benefit of a lot of the things that we fought, fought for and really did successfully gain. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the 
do you think the contract uh, adequately addresses some of the questions that had been raised about um, streaming revenues and how those are uh, shared with uh, with union members and uh, whether or not it's equitable? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely significant gains in the way that revenue and the new media contract in general, we don't have full stipulation on what that is yet. We just know that there is has been significant gain in the way that wages are both paid out uh, up front and in back, you know, none of these unions gain any sort of immediate residuals. You know, we're not directors. We're not getting residual checks on a regular basis. But revenue, residual revenue is paid into our pension plan and primarily funds the pension plan for us. Um, So it is pretty significant and it is a very important factor um, towards our longevity. I think some members uh, may had been uh, anticipating a strike and and had been preparing for one. Um, perhaps you were one of them. Um, do you think that the union might have had more leverage had uh, the strike actually uh, you know come to pass, or uh, do you feel like you know the negotiations and sort of run their course and uh, and the deal that was struck over the weekend was probably you know the ultimate uh, uh, culmination of all of that. I believe that the deal that was made over the weekend was the last ditch effort to try and prevent strike. Um, And they definitely ended up giving us things that they did not want to give us um, based on that. So I think it was fulfilling on that front. Uh, Nobody wanted to go to a strike. It would have been a financial disaster, I think, for everybody involved. So that is highly concerning. Um, But I don't know. I don't know that we would have benefited uh, from a strike any more than we would have benefited from them settling a deal there wasn't anything that we were you know like yeah we could have asked for more within the five categories of things that we were asking for but they did honor every single one of the things that we've been seeking um so that's exciting i do believe that they're you know we're we're a very very overworked industry right now we're all being run over at top speed in fact a lot of productions ramped up when they heard there was a strike and worked you know, 14 to 16 hour days, Saturday and Sunday to try and get in their last hours before we were to go on strike. So, you know, everyone was a little bummed on the fact that we didn't go on strike because everyone kind of just needs to sleep for more than eight hours or more than six hours, which is what we average for ourselves. So, um, you know, like, I think everyone kind of could, like the industry could use a week off straight up. So we were definitely kind of hoping for a week off nationally, just because all of us were like, yeah, we just kind of need to breathe for a second because we're all, you know, like most network shows are working six day weeks because of the pressure to try and make 22 episodes in less time than they're used to because, you know, they can only get back to work at a certain point due to the pandemic. Um, and if every show's taken some sort of a pandemic related hit at some point, right? We have to stop, da- shut down for a day. We have to shut down for two weeks. We have to do yada, yada, despite the fact that we're getting tested four times a week with PCR nasal tests. Uh, and we're wearing N95s full-time, face shields full-time, you know, like it's not comfortable conditions in any capacity. So I think that, you know, we're just wiped. Uh, A lot of people, I think, initially reacted because they felt that they could get more with a strike and also because they had put in their heart that a strike was coming and a break, they could see a break. And, you know, part of the fight is, you know, internal and emotional and personal. I think uh, some members said that they had the the pandemic itself had sort of, um, in a way, kind of forced people to sort of reassess their their job and their relationship to their work um, in this oh, industry. My, myself included, absolutely. Yeah, 
And yeah. did you come to any insights in terms of, uh, you know, being forced to take time off and like re- figuring out again, like, you know, uh, what, uh, what the role of this job is in your, in your, in your overall life? I mean, yeah, no, I've definitely reconsidered this job quite a bit uh, dur- during the pandemic, you know, getting consistent sleep uh, and having the ability to like take deep breaths and stuff like that was eye-opening in a lot of ways you know it was eye-opening because my body got a lot healthier um I was I got deeper sleep I like physically was in way better shape than I think I've ever been in um I realized how much I value myself I realized how much I value the people I surround myself with that are not in the industry and how little time and attention I've been able to provide to them and I think a lot of people felt that way um you know I've had I had coworkers who were like, you know, I have a three-year-old I've never met, you know, like they've been in the same house as me for the last three years, but I had no idea what their personality was. I had no idea who the hell they were, you know, like it was the first chance for me to actually like meet my kid, um, which is just, it's nuts, but it's like very much matter of fact, the truth. Uh, so there's definitely a huge element of that, but it was also difficult because I work in a profession in which I am very valuable um, and the tasks that I'm required to accomplish within my job are all performance-based, which is super fulfilling. I'm in crazy locations, also super fulfilling, um, but does not translate on paper in the way that a resume would. You know, like mo- most people don't comprehend what we do because it's not, you know, there isn't like a fact sheet about it. Or, you know, if you have this skill set or if you have this degree, you fit this position. It doesn't really work that way. This industry doesn't translate. So. Um, there was definitely a huge moment of complete lostness that I think a lot of me and my coworkers felt because we, there was nothing that we could provide to the pandemic. A couple of people really did figure out how to like turn it around, turn their production company into something that was assisting with COVID in some capacity. But a lot of us felt very useless despite the fact that we were unemployed for seven months, you know, collecting unemployment and standing by until our industry reappeared. And then finally, when it did reappear, it reappeared with a lot of heavy demands as far as like how we do our jobs and with absolutely no breaks to be found because, you know, everybody watched everything on Netflix during the break and they need more content now. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if you felt, if you felt useless earlier, you'd probably feel uh, a little bit overused right now (laughs) in some ways. Yeah. No, I, now we're getting completely overworked. Um, and that's, that's disappointing. You know, it was definitely disappointing because I definitely felt like I, you know, I would love to have more to give, but it's not like I've had any time to do anything extracurricular that could yield me the, uh, you know, afford me the time or the ability to give back. You know, I've never gotten to volunteer because I work 70 to 85 hour work weeks, you know, like when is there time for that? Yeah. There are literally only so many hours in a week that you can use. So, yeah. 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 It's like, yeah, it's physically impossible. Yeah. And now it's back to, <laughs> back to business as usual, but at least you have a new contract under your belt. So, um, or, yeah, or there, we, there'll be a vote know, at least. So, um, yeah, no, we've got, we've still got some huge steps ahead of it. Us, you know, like right now they're doing the area standards agreement, which is sort of the sister, uh, set of negotiations. It covers a lot of the other unions and the 13 unions that comprise IOSI. Um, and we're going to see what their deal is and we're going to see how they feel. Um, we know that they came in pretty upset with the negotiations that were made on IOSI's front. 
Um, and I know that we're not going to sign off until they're also satiated. Um, so, you know, we're definitely in limbo until we see how they fare uh, and see how their negotiations go. Uh, we still have to actually see the act the legal memorandum of agreement, which nobody's seen yet because by the end of their 11th hour negotiations, it was being done verbally. You know, we don't actually have it on paper anywhere. So it needs to come into paper. It needs to be agreed upon. And then the members need to review it and ask questions uh, before we take this to a vote. So we've still got a few uphill battles ahead of us, but I do think that this is a huge step in the right direction. And like, you know, some of these things I'm like, the quicker, the better. I've already, on the job that I'm on right now, if we had the 54-hour turnaround rule in hand, then this weekend that I'm about to walk into would be shorter. But it's not going to be. I'm going to wrap at 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday, and I will go back to work at 6 a.m. on Monday. Wow. You know, it would be nice. It's some of these things it'll be nice to see. I haven't broken for lunch today. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, you know, like, it's just... It's the reality of the condition, and some of these things, the minute they come into play, will genuinely change the way that my day-to-day goes. That was Sarah May Gunther, a camera assistant with IATSE Local 600. Striketober is international. As the world's leaders prepare to arrive in Glasgow, Scotland, for the COP26 climate summit this November, the workers of Scotland are prepared to disrupt things if they don't get fair treatment. Glasgow bin workers, members of the union GMB, have voted to strike beginning on November 1st if their demands for a pay increase are not met. Chris Mitchell from the GMB told Glasgow Live that the workers had been called COVID heroes and heroes deserve a decent pay rise. While negotiations with the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities, or COSLA, are at a national level, the union is obviously looking to apply leverage where it counts. No one wants to go to Glasgow for a big conference, only to see garbage littering the streets. 95% of union members had voted down an £850 a year increase for local government staff, earning up to £25,000 a year, and moved to a full industrial ballot of members who are employed in a variety of local services, including schools and local trash and cleaning services across Scotland. According to the union's Glasgow branch, 96.9% of local members voted for the strike unless they get an acceptable offer in time. And it's not just the bin workers either looking to draw attention to their cause during the summit. Rail workers across Scotland have also voted to strike during COP26 as part of an ongoing struggle over pay, conditions, and proposed cuts to services at the train operator, which, according to the BBC, wants to reduce the number of services across Scotland by 300 a day from next May. ScotRail is currently run by a Dutch firm, but is set to be renationalized by the Scottish government next year. Obviously, during a climate summit, public transportation will be an issue, and the workers are seizing this moment to make it clear that public transit is not sustainable without sustainable conditions for the workers who make it run, and that it is ludicrous to be cutting services at a moment where they need to be massively expanded. We will, of course, keep you posted on whether the strikes come off. You should look out for our last week's guest, Eve Livingston's coverage of such a thing, as she is a Glasgow-based reporter. And if you are in Glasgow for COP26, let us know. While the IATSE strike was averted, John Deere workers have been on strike since last week, after the workers overwhelmingly rejected a tentative agreement between United Auto Workers and the farm and construction equipment giant. 
With about 10,000 members on strike, it's the largest private sector work stoppage since the GM strike two years ago. Altogether, the strike has shuttered 11 factories in Illinois, Iowa, and Kansas, and three distribution centers in Georgia, Illinois, and Colorado. And as with the previous UAW strike, many of the workers appear to be at odds with the union leadership about what they want out of their next contract. The deal that was rejected would have offered a 20% wage increase stretched across six years and a cost-of-living adjustment, along with a boost to the retirement bonus. But the 90% no vote on that deal indicates just how inadequate the workers thought this was. Basically, they feel that they're being left with crumbs during a time when the company is booming, raking in record revenues, and actually expanding its workforce. The wages at John Deere are still based in part on a piece rate system that requires that workers hit productivity targets. And overall, inflation-adjusted wages at the company have actually shrunk since 1997. One of the big problems that the workers had with the initial deal was the creation of a so-called third tier in the wage and benefits structure by eliminating pensions for new hires. Currently, there are already two tiers split between workers hired prior to 1997 and after 1997, the latter of whom have lower benefits. The third tier that was proposed in that tentative agreement would have done away with pensions and threatened to degrade working conditions even further for the newest workers. Overall, John Deere workers who were deemed essential during the pandemic feel that the work they put in during that time hasn't really been recognized, and the company is still apparently trying to go on with business as usual. Adding injury to insult, the company has been trying to replace the strikers with white-collar John Deere employees, including many engineers and others with office jobs. And in some cases, these folks don't really seem to know what they're doing. Labor Notes reported earlier this week that just, quote, 10 hours into the strike, an ambulance had already been called at the drivetrain operations in Waterloo. At the tractor cab and assembly operations across town, a salary worker crashed a tractor into a pole on the first day. In Coffeyville, Kansas, members on the picket line reported hearing alarms repeatedly going off in the plant, and it was rumored that a salaried employee attempting to operate the furnace had been calling members and retirees for advice. It would be kind of comical if it weren't so sad. Labor Notes points out that the same white-collar workforce, who are not part of the bargaining unit, obviously, has also suffered in recent years as the company, quote, cut hundreds of salaried jobs in 2020 and forced some of the remaining employees into lower pay grades and contractor status, according to salaried workers, unquote. Meanwhile, some farmers fear that the strike could rattle agricultural supply chains, not only by making tractors harder to buy, but also because of another problem with John Deere's production process. It is extremely difficult to repair tractors because the company uses proprietary digital controls to deliberately restrict tractor owners from repairing their equipment. Hopefully, the strike is just the start of people starting to question the power that Deere and company wields over our entire agricultural economy. For decades, United Auto Workers has been controlled by a tight-knit group of insiders known for its opacity and corrupt tendencies, leading many rank-and-file members to criticize the leadership for its arrogance, lack of accountability, and failure to address the needs of a workforce that is increasingly precarious and alienated. But all that might start to change in the coming weeks as UAW members vote on a historic referendum to change the way it elects its central leadership. Members can decide whether to replace the current system of indirect elections through a small, exclusive group of delegates with direct elections, known as one member, one vote. That might seem like a pretty basic change, but pro-reform members say that this is the first step towards breaking the monopoly on power held by the current leadership, and it could help this storied union become more progressive and address endemic corruption. 
and it only took a huge embezzlement scandal and a federal indictment to get here. To learn more about how the current turmoil among UAW's top brass could create an opportunity for grassroots change, I talked with Justin Mayhew of Unite All Workers for Democracy, or UAWD, which describes itself as, quote, a grassroots movement of UAW members, active and retired, united in the common goal of creating a more democratic and accountable union, unquote. What are people voting on and why? (laughs) Just start with that. Yeah, so actually ballots went out today, October 19th, and uh, we're voting to decide how we're going to elect our international executive board officers uh, in the UAW and uh, to either keep the current system, which is the delegate uh, convention system, where delegates at a convention every four years uh, vote for our international executive board officers, or to go to direct elections, which would be where every UAW member uh, has a direct vote for these officers. This was mandated by the government uh, due to the corruption scandal. I believe 11, I wanna say it was 11 UAW officers, high ranking, uh, two former presidents included, uh, were found guilty of embezzling, uh, intimidating vendors into getting money, basically a bunch of uh, pretty uh, unfortunate things. And so part of the consent decree between the UAW and the U.S. government was that they would hold this referendum vote to decide, you know, how we would elect our uh, officials going forward um, because there's a lack of democracy big time uh, at the international level of our union. Yeah. Um, Can you describe briefly how the system works now and um, and the problems that you see with this indirect election system. I think uh, maybe people who aren't familiar with union elections would be kind of surprised that it's not one member, one vote uh, at UAW. So the way it works now is every four years, locals from all across the country, like we elect delegates from our own membership and those delegates go up to the convention in Detroit and they vote for international executive board officers. And uh, how many delegates you get is based on, it's proportionate to how many members you have in your local. And uh, so the delegates go up there and they vote for the IEB officers. And for the last 70 plus years, the same political party within our union has won every, well, I shouldn't say every, but almost every single election year after year, convention after convention. I think there was one time that I can think of for sure, 1986, whenever an outsider was actually able to win a region five director election. And even then uh, (laughs) the political party in control attempted to steal the election away from them. Um, But basically the reason why, like I, the shortcomings I see is that delegates can be controlled in various ways. You know, and it's a lot easier to control like X amount of delegates than than it is to control, you know, 400,000 active workers who would be voting. Or if it includes retirees, we're talking about a million uh, members altogether that would have a right to vote on these officers. And uh, ways that delegates can be controlled is they can be offered internationally appointed jobs if they vote for, you know, the single party's candidates, or they can be intimidated uh, there's been cases where uh, international officers have basically told 
local delegates that your plant won't get future product if you don't support our candidates. And so it's just a lot easier for this one political party known as the administration caucus to uh, just manipulate the system, you know, to the point now where I'd say the convention system, I mean, it's completely controlled by the administration caucus and uh, there's no democracy. Uh, Gary Jones, who was our, got elected as president in 2018, who is now in prison because he was stealing money from our union. He got elected with over 99% of the delegate vote in 2018, um, even though there were two other candidates that were running for president. You know, I think it was 99.2% or something voted for Gary Jones. So does this system of elections, does it only apply to the top leadership uh, of the union or is this also how, you know, uh, officials and locals are elected? Yeah, so that's, that's uh, you know, a point that we make uh, with United Workers for Democracy, UAWD, is that, you know, like in our local elections, it's one member, one vote. You know, everything is one member, one vote, like within our, our union, except for how we elect the International Executive Board officers. And for some reason with that, they want to do a delegate system. And I know a lot of unions do use a delegate system, um, but, you know, I just, I think that, if for 70 years, any one political party had complete control over the union, I mean, I don't, I think people would have a hard time making an argument that it's an actual democracy. That's, uh, that's longer than most uh, dictators around the world have been in place. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and just to clarify, when you vote on uh, contracts, it's also a one member, one vote as well? Uh, yes, yep. Uh, contracts, it just... If the majority votes for the contract and that's and the contract's approved, you know, if if not, then it's not. I mean, it's it's such a strange thing, like to me, because everything else we do in the union is uh, one member, one vote, but not with the IEB officer elections. It's a little bit like uh, how the president is elected through the electoral college, <laughs> and that's yeah, and that's that's the strange thing, you know, like to me is like the same folks who advocate for. You know, we need to get rid of the electoral college, which I agree with. Um, they'll also be against getting rid of the delegate system to elect our international executive board officers. It just, it kind of seems like to me, it's a matter of convenience for them. You know. So currently, um, there's this consent decree, and the referendum is part of that broader reform agenda. Um, how how is the how how has the union been? Uh, since the consent decree was put in place? I mean, how are people feeling generally? Do they feel optimistic that this might lead to some meaningful change? How is morale among the members? Um, I think, you know, I think people are, a lot of people are excited um, in a lot of ways, you know, because we know that if we can get direct elections, you know, it's a step towards a more democratic union. But I think people are like cautiously optimistic um, because, you know, we know that even if we get one member, one vote, that the administration caucus is still going to wield so much power within our union uh, that it's still going to be a really big uphill battle. But as far as like, you know, the thing that's really bothered me with this whole since the consent decree, you know, was agreed to is that 
our international leadership has done very, very little to inform the membership that this vote is even taking place. I think that they may have made one post on social media about it, about how members need to update their their contact information with their local union hall so that they would be ensured they get a ballot. But other than that, you know, we're seeing like, like every day there's multiple memes about Joe Biden's build back better agenda, which, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that, but I do have a problem whenever that's all they're talking about. And they're not talking about, you know, we have this historic election coming up, this vote coming up and, you know, this is how the process is going to work. Like now, you know, I know they can't advocate for one side of the issue or not, but they can inform the membership about the facts about, hey, October 19th ballots will be start getting mailed out. Uh, you have to have your ballot returned by November 29th, and they're not doing any of that. Is that basically one of the reasons that uh, UAWD was founded um, in the sense that you I mean, you seem to be putting a lot of resources into keeping members informed about what's at stake with this referendum. Yeah, because I, well, you know, to me, it's it's just, it's the way the administration caucus operates, which is they don't feel it's in their best interest to have an informed membership about the vote, because I personally feel like if the membership is totally informed, you know, direct elections would pass pretty handily. And it still might, you know, but I think obviously it's in their favor to some degree to keep everybody in the dark. And I don't think that that's the job of our leadership. I don't think, you know, I think that they should just present us the facts and let us make the decision. And that's not what they're trying to do. You know, they're basically trying to black out any information. And that's exactly why, you know, we've tried to put a lot of time and and effort into reaching as many UAW members uh, as possible to make sure they know what's going on. And the, you know, one of my biggest concerns is with retirees, you know, because a lot of retirees moved away from their local, you know, when they retired or their local has since closed since they retired. And it's like, we've had numerous retirees say they, you know, don't even know what's going on. So like, that's a big concern for me too. I, I think that like the sentiment is definitely, behind, you know, like members are definitely behind, you know, direct elections more than keeping a delegate system. It's just a matter of like, will there be enough people that know what's going on, you know, to, to vote for direct elections? Because the administration caucus will have their loyal people making sure that those people vote. And there's a lot of, you know, loyalists to the administration caucus. So, I think that's kind of their strategy is just to keep the members in the dark while also making sure that their loyalists know exactly what's going on and that they need to vote and et cetera. Right. Which is uh, basically an indirect form of voter suppression, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yes very much so. Yeah. Um, in your outreach, what have you been hearing from members that you've spoken to about this? Um, are they enthusiastic about the referendum? Um, do they... Uh, you know, are they anticipating other sort of big changes um, beyond this referendum? Um, I think it's kind of dependent on what, you know, like when I talk to graduate workers, they seem a lot more, uh, you know, active, I guess you could say. And I think that that comes from like in the auto industry, UAW workers like have just been mentally beat down 
by the administration caucus and the corporations for 40 years now that like a lot of people just don't think any positive change is possible. Um, so like in auto, I mean, we, we have had, you know, I think we've had a lot of success, like reaching out to people and, and most people we talk to are like, you know, like I said, they're behind direct elections. Um, but like, I'd say like in higher ed, it's been, you know, a lot more like they're on the ball about it and like wanting to really push it. And uh, we, I mean, not to say we haven't had great people that have been helping us not because we definitely have. And we've had a lot of retirees that have like stepped up and really helped flyer at plants and uh, work other workplaces. And it's been really great. Uh, I just think that like one of the biggest challenges is breaking the apathy of the UAW auto worker, you know, because it's just been nothing but bad news for 40 years. Maybe the graduate workers are more easily motivated because they have probably just recently organized their, their unions. Yeah. And I, and I think a part of it too, like, at least, you know, in my opinion is that like, you know, the graduate workers are, you know, they're younger people and, I feel like the younger generation has a different viewpoint of what's going on in our country. You know, it's, it's a, it's a more militant kind of viewpoint, which, you know, I'm, I'm all about that. And I wish that like, uh, we were like that in auto and, you know, I think we're going to get there. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of trying to, like I said, break the apathy and, and, you know, make people realize that we can change things for the better if we're all willing to work together to, to get there. Technically, the union leadership is not supposed to be advocating on either side of this. Is that right? Are they sort of barred from spending resources on campaigning for this referendum? Yeah, yeah. So, so like, no union funds can be used to advocate for either side. Although the administration caucus, like, well, you know, Technically, the UAW, which, you know, is the administration caucus, as far as the International Executive Board goes, uh, they tried to amend the consent decree to allow them to be able to use uh, union resources, limited union resources to advocate for the delegate system, which, you know, <laughs> UAW, we were totally, well, we were pissed off about it, I mean, because it's just like, <laughs> how are you going to spend our union dues <laughs> to advocate for the system that like, I know majority of people don't want. That's pretty funny. Given that uh, you were just talking about how completely silent they were. <laughs> on, on, yeah. They're, they're, they're very vocal about like things that help them, you know, like uh, in, in some things, you know, like they campaign for Joe Biden. Uh, you know, we've got, things in the mail, like really nice flyer things in the mail. And it's like, I'm all about that, you know, because I do feel like Joe Biden was better for labor than Donald Trump. And that goes without saying, but you know, it's like they can communicate very efficiently when they want to. And the Joe Biden campaign was a time where they wanted to. And so everybody knew whether, you know, I mean, I think like a lot of the membership just tunes them out, you know, the, the UAW leadership, because it's always the same thing, you know, one of the critiques that I've read um, that the sort of pro-delegate system folks have put forward is that if there are direct elections that might open the door to uh, 
more corruption because of campaign contributions. It, does that hold any water for you or? Um, I mean, not, not for me, you know, personally, but that, that is a, you know, a criticism of direct elections that we've heard quite a bit. And, uh, you know, in these other unions that have direct elections, like, you know, the Teamsters, I always use as an example, just because I know members of TDU Teamsters for Democratic Union. And, you know, I talk to them a lot. It's like, uh, there's campaign finance restrictions, you know, like, it's not like anybody can donate to your campaign, you know, and there's like a certain amount, you can only donate a certain amount, it has to be from members of that union. Uh, I just think that there's a lot of mechanisms that would be in place that would stop that from happening. Um, but another thing like that has really been on my mind a lot is like the people that are supporting the delegate system, you know, not all of them, but you know, some of these criticism I hear of direct elections is about dark money is what they said. Like when we had our webcast forum where we had, you know, advocates of each side of the issue that were speaking, uh, you know, they said dark money would like infiltrate our union. And my thing is, I think dark money has already infiltrated our union. Yeah, it's, it's like, what about that uh, millions of joint funds, you know, like uh, the the Ford and, and GM and Chrysler, they the, the joint programs and the joint funds that that they have like just lavished, you know, the, the corporations have lavished a bunch of money on our union, but it's like not on the average worker, you know, it's been on the people at the top and uh, the training center. I know that they sold the the FCA UAW training center recently, or they're trying to sell it. And it's like, this thing is like a palace. I mean, it's like insane. And it's like, someone can't tell me that, that, that kind of money being injected into our union hasn't, you know, uh, swayed our, international executive board officers to think a certain way or to vote a certain way or to want to, to lead our union in a certain direction. There were other issues that were uh, revealed in the federal litigation and that the consent decree addresses. Um, are those being addressed right now or is it, is it there's sort of like a multi-step process? Um, I think, you know, like, so there's a monitor. Mm-hmm going to oversee the the UAW for I believe it's up to six years um, and so there's that uh, that they've put in place you know, which obviously has never never happened before and then I know that there was mechanisms put in place to uh, more closely watch how money is spent like where all the money is going and then the UAW formed an ethics advisory committee, which, you know, I'm fortunate that I, you know, I'm on that committee. I got selected um, for that committee. But, you know, the committee has no power to, to do anything. We can make suggestions to the International Executive Board, but they don't have to implement any of our suggestions. So, you know, I feel like a lot of stuff that the UAW itself, like imposed, you know, on itself, you know, trying to, to me, it, it was like trying to get ahead of, you know, the government in a way of like, okay, well, we, we'll impose these rules on ourselves, and maybe that'll get us a little bit more of a, 
you know, a, a better deal with the government, but like the stuff that they're doing, I don't think is going to, it's not going to change. Cause like I tell people, it's like all corruption is not illegal, you know, like, and that's the thing I think that a lot of folks aren't thinking about. I mean, I think typically people, when I think about corruption, I think about the 11 UAW officers that actually were criminally corrupt, like cr criminally uh, guilty of doing illegal things, you know, but they're not thinking about the ideology of the administration caucus, which is basically like to be partners with the company. Uh, we have to keep them as competitive as possible, which means cutting our own jobs, working the remaining jobs even harder. Uh, you know, it's like, it's this ideology that I, in my opinion goes completely against union principles. And that's not going to change just because you know, of a monitor or through direct elections, you know, I mean, that's gotta be something that we, the membership fights for, uh, you know, like I say, it's like, if we win direct elections, I mean, that's just the beginning, you know, of a, of a long road. Assuming, you know, if, if direct elections were to be implemented, what, what are some broader sort of systemic reforms that you'd like to see um, you know, beyond just getting rid of a corrupt leadership, uh, what are some of the things that you would like a newer, better leadership to accomplish? To me, a good example would be like the John Deere strike that's going on right now. I mean, I'm like, what is what is the international UAW doing to raise awareness about this strike that is a huge strike? It's getting national coverage, like from ABC and you know, I know Jonah Furman, Labor Notes reporter, I mean, he's been getting interviewed like every day on, you know, these big networks like about this strike. And then I look at what the UAW leadership's doing. It's like nothing. They're they're tweeting about the Build Back Better agenda, you know, all the time. It's like all that they're talking about, really. And I don't know. I, I just feel like a leadership should be uh, very proactive in trying to help these strikers win. And so that I would like to see a much more progressive leadership that really wants to, you know, push things. Um, I just think we need to make our process within our union more democratic in general, you know. I mean, so much of what goes on at the conventions, I mean, is just definitely needs to be fixed about you voting by a show of hands where there's no record of how votes, you know, went and how each delegate voted, you know. Um, and one thing I was talking to with the, actually John Deere worker, was it yesterday, was about how I think much like how the Teamsters just did in their convention recently, uh, strike pay for workers should start on day one of the strike. Like the way it is now is that I believe strike benefits start on day eight of a strike. And then strike benefits are 275 bucks. I would like to see that get increased, like because nobody in the year 2021 can live on $275 a week. Um, so those are, you know, some things I think like that seem like they should be pretty obvious things, but there's just, there's so many things that like, I feel like we could do to make our union more, you know, accountable to the membership and, to really help the membership, like uh, I just feel like the international leadership should be doing a lot more to really help, 
you know, and I'm speaking from experience of the 2019 GM strike of, there was just like no direction. You know, it was very, just, it felt very haphazard. It was very just like, well, we're on strike. You guys are on your own really. And I uh, hope you can, hope you can make it, <laughs> you know, for which six weeks into our strike in 2019, I mean, I knew that contract was going to pass, even though I didn't think it was a good contract because people have been starved out for six weeks. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what you'd like to see change about um, your workplace? You're, you're an auto worker. Um, so many, so many changes have swept through um, the auto industry uh, in recent years. And there've been, I mean, some places have just been sort of hemorrhaging jobs. Um, how do you think the union has used its leverage in recent years? And what would you like to see a different leadership do? I guess I would like a leadership that actually fights to stop, you know, the companies from cutting our jobs. But like, like I was saying before, their thought process is we have to help the company cut some jobs because we have to remain competitive. Like how can we find ways to, and that's, we actually have UAW members who are appointed that it's their job to help the company find ways like, Oh, what can we take off of this job? to get rid of that job and then put, you know, the elements of that job onto someone else. I mean, we have UAW people who are doing this. I mean, so many times, like during my 10 years in the union, they have, I heard that's just the way it is, you know, it could always be worse. I mean, these aren't exactly inspiring slogans. To, <laughs> it could always be worse. <laughs> yeah, it could, it, exactly. And that's why I said, like, you know, when the UAW was, you know, was actually winning things that was, we can make your life better. And now it's just, well, it could be worse. You could be working at Walmart. And that's really stuff you'll hear from UAW leaders sometimes. And they'll also say like, if you don't like the way things are, McDonald's is hiring, you know, down the road. That's the stuff they're really saying to workers like, and, you know, not just like people like me, you know, like, but like people, like temporary workers who are the people who are really screwed over. I mean, they're telling these people that. And there's still a two-tier wage system in place. Yeah. Like, so that was like a, the thing that the big 2019 thing was, oh, we got rid of the tier system, you know, and like, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but I'm like, to me, if we really ended the tier system, it would mean we're all equal. And I don't have a pension. And I don't have health care in retirement, but, you know, traditional workers do. And I'm happy that they do have that. And I would, you know, I'll, I would fight to make sure they always have that. But it's like in, if if half of us don't have that, how are we equal? But then on top of that, you know, I use this example because it just happened maybe a couple of weeks ago. The Spring Hill, Tennessee General Motors plant, they agreed with the company to outsource more union jobs to, to uh, you know, outside work, basically people who are going to be paid like probably half the wages and not nearly as good benefits, but because they're like not technically, you know, seen as being, you know, like the traditional, I guess, UAW worker inside the auto plan. It's like, it's almost like it's kind of swept under the rug. And this is a lot of what's going on is just like outsourcing our jobs to third parties. And then those third parties, like it's basically a temp agency 
that just exploits workers like at my plant, our sanitation people. I mean, they get treated like hell. And I, I, I don't know 100% sure, but, you know, from people I know that are pretty reliable, they say that these are UAW members that are making less than $15 an hour, you know, that are treated like crap. And, you know, the sanitation jobs used to be the jobs for like the high seniority people that were maybe too old to be able to work on the assembly line, you know, but it was something they could do that, uh, you know, where they could still earn a paycheck and make a decent living, you know, and, and they've just completely ruined that. I mean, now, and, and it never stops. And that's the whole thing is that this drive to be competitive never ends and it's never going to end. And GM is always trying to find new ways to cut more jobs, become more lean and outsource more jobs. And it's just, I don't, you know, for a union to accept that, I just don't understand it. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, even if the union claims to be moving away from a two-tier system, there's still pretty stark inequalities and maybe even growing inequalities um, between different types of workers. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, to me, it's a lot of PR, you know, to say like, oh, we got rid of the, it's a way to sell it. It was a way to sell it to the membership. We got rid of the tier system because eventually, you know, I mean, I've been a UAW member for 10 years. I still haven't reached top pay. And with the pandemic and the new contract that was agreed to in 2019, like, uh, I, you know, you have to work 52 working weeks to get your next raise. So I've been laid off since February because of the chip shortage that's been going on in the pandemic. Mm. So I haven't accrued any time towards that. And yeah, so I got hired in uh, May, no, it was April of 2012 is when I got hired on permanent. And I'm still not the top pay. (laughs) So, you know, it's just crazy because like, but we, this, these were things we were saying about the 2019 contract before it got ratified was like, this stuff here doesn't make sense. Like it went from, cause it used to be just 52 calendar weeks and you got a raise and they changed it to 52 working weeks in the 2019 contract. So that drastically changed like the way people were going to get raises. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure the pandemic probably disrupted a lot of people's, uh, not just their career path, but just like their lives in general. I mean, uh, you said you've been out of work since February. Yeah, so we we got laid off, I want to say like around February 12th, maybe or somewhere around there. And then we did come back for a week, uh, I want to say in September, and which was great because, you know, getting back into work, just working even one day, reset our time on our benefits. So basically, like, depending on how long you work, you work there, this, how long you can still get benefits whenever you're laid off. And a lot of people's Benefits had expired because we were off for so long, but I do know our local leadership did fight, you know, to get us in there to restart the benefits, you know, so that we came in for a week and we did a bunch of, you know, what I consider to be like propaganda, like brainwashing workers, like GM tries to brainwash us and be like, we're one team, you know, we're all in this together. And, you know, when, when we win, you win kind of stuff. And so it was just like a bunch of that kind of stuff, but it was really great to be able to restart all of our benefits to, you know, reset the clock on those so that people could get their benefits again. 
So uh, you referred to the graduate workers earlier um, as sort of this new, newer sort of arm of UAW as it expands into new industries. Um, how do you think the um, those locals and uh, and you know other uh, folks in in industries outside of auto um, are sort of viewing the turmoil <laughs> in the top leadership and and uh, and this referendum and this consent decree. I mean, when you talk to those folks, what do they what do they think about what's happening to their union? I just I think that you know the corruption is given a lot of ammunition to corporations and anti-labor, you know, organizations like to, to use against us, which, you know, is, is totally not fair, you know, because like people always like say like the UAW is corrupt. It's like, well, you know, some of our leaders may be corrupt, but there's a million, you know, active and retired workers and, and the vast majority of those people are not corrupt, you know, but that's, you know, as we know, it's about, you know, it's about, the optics of something it's not the reality so the corruption scandal has allowed like all these uh anti-labor organizations to be like look at these people you want these people you know organizing uh you want to be represented by these people that are stealing money from their own members and so it's definitely been uh, a really bad thing to me for our our image and was saying that like when they're trying to organize that, you know, some people, some workers will be like, you know, like, we'll bring up the corruption scandal. Like, uh, you want us to join you guys, uh, but you have corruption. So I think it's made everything more difficult, um, which is, you know, all the more reason why accountability from our leadership is so important. Yeah, I was going to say, um, thinking about all these struggles that uh, that there have been to uh, try to organize auto workers in the South. Um, this this can't help um, uh, when you know there are these massive corruption scandals, and you're meanwhile trying to make a case for workers in a right to work state that they should unionize with UAW. Yeah, it's like basically like saying, you know, like help us uh, join our union, help us fight the company and our own leadership. Like is basically the selling point, you know. And I just think until until we get new ideas and new leadership in there, it's always going to be a battle because, you know, I read an article about one of those, you know, one of those organizing drives UAW had uh, down South. And whenever it failed, like one of the people who was helping organize, organize was like, uh, the UAW went to management first and was like, hey, listen, if you let us in here, like, it won't be so bad. You know, they didn't ask the workers like, hey, what do you want out of it, out of a union? What what do you not like about your workplace? It was just we're going to tell you what you're going to get, which is very much the way it is. You know, for us now, it's like we put in resolutions, they tell you put in a resolution so we know what you want uh, us to bargain for. But then every contract, we somehow don't get to any of the things we bargain for, but we'll get a, a bigger sign on bonus, which is basically just a bribe a legal bribe. Hey, take this, uh, like whatever, like $9,000 and, uh, agree to this bad contract. And our leadership is all about, Hey, we got you this big signing bonus. It's like, well, you know, $9,000 taxed it. I think it's like 42% or something. I mean, you know, not saying like it's, I mean, does it help? Yeah. But like, if you look at how much money you're losing in the long run of not getting actual, 
substantial like wage increases, hourly wage increases, you know, I mean, it's just such a bad deal, but this is, again, this is the administration caucuses go to, it's their playbook. Yeah. Sort of trading some short-term, short-term gains for uh, abandoning Mm -hmm. that long-term vision. Um, So before we wrap up, um, do you have any other thoughts on what's going on with the John Deere strike? Because that is uh, the other big UAW news um, in the headlines. And, uh, and I think uh, it's, you know, maybe not, they're not workers that we would traditionally associate with UAW. They're not with big auto per se, but uh, they're facing definitely their own set of issues that have been going on for a long time. You know, obviously I, I wish that John Deere would have just negotiated in good faith and would have offered them a fair contract. But I mean, the international leadership brought back a tentative agreement that was voted down by over 90% of the workers at John Deere, which is like, it just shows how out of touch our international leadership is with the workers. Like, why would you even bring that to the workers? I mean, for it to get voted down by 90%. So, you know, just from an outsider perspective, I, I think they have a good chance of, of winning uh, the contract they deserve um, because I feel like some things are in their favor that maybe normally aren't in strikers favor, you know, the labor shortage, you know, like what they call the labor shortage. Um, I guess it's just companies not wanting to pay workers decent money to, to do the jobs they want them to do. And I think is a lot of it, but uh, you know, like these companies like John Deere won't just be able to hire people to replace, you know, at my work, I can say this from at, at my work, they have a really hard time finding people, new workers because why, I mean, the work we do is like, it's very, has long-term negative effects on your body you know the repetitive nature of what we do and if you've been in there long enough i mean you'll uh, you'll be crippled in some way and why you know why would someone want to go in there and be like okay i'm going to go in as a temporary worker and do this for like maybe three years four years before i even start accruing seniority you know and, and get treated like hell from the company um yeah so so I think that that's really in John Deere workers' favor is the fact that, you know, people aren't willing to as much willing to accept being treated like hell from companies. And uh, and the national coverage has been very good. I mean, I guess very good compared to what it normally is for strikes. Uh, it seems like the public sentiments in the John Deere workers' favor big time right now. And like UAWD, we we actually started a fundraiser on Monday, I believe, or Sunday. I think it was Sunday, actually. We started a fundraiser to try to raise uh, money for John Deere workers. And in the course of two days, we were somehow able to raise $50,000, which just blew us away. But I think it kind of goes to show like the the public sentiment, you know, like people are behind these workers. And uh, I just hope that they, you know, they can stay as long as it takes to get what they deserve. and I hope that our international leadership actually provides them with as much help as possible to make that happen. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, striketober this month, and uh, and it does seem like the pandemic has forced a lot of workers to maybe rethink um, their relationship to their jobs and their relationship to their employer. Um, do you think that's 
that's uh, fueling some of the energy, both around the referendum and the John Deere strike and other other uh, labor disputes that are ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I know, you know, John Deere workers were deemed essential. And that's kind of one of the things that they're I know they have T-shirts made that they wear out on the picket lines, you know, where it's like we were deemed essential in, in 2020 or whatever it was, you know, and, you know, now prove it. And it's exactly right. It's like they had to work through a pandemic, you know, when we know it wasn't the safest thing for them to be doing. But, you know, we got to make the corporations their massive profits. So they were basically forced to work in those situations. And now I think it's time for, you know, John Deere to hold up their end of the bargain. And yeah, I think that, I mean, anytime I go to a fast food place or something, I, there's almost always a sign that says like, we are short staffed right now. You know, like, uh, we're sorry for the inconvenience. And, you know, a lot of people get pissed about that, but I, it always makes me happy because I, I'm glad that people are finally starting to, you know, be like, I'm, I'm not going to accept this shitty job for these horrible wages, you know, to be driven as hard as, you know, as they are by their employers. And, you know, I, th I think it's great to see. And I just hope that, you know, it, it, it keeps going and that it can build into something even bigger because workers in our country have been screwed over for so long and they deserve a lot better. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Justin Mayhew, a worker at GM's Fairfax Assembly Plant in Kansas City, member of UAW Local 31, and a founding member of UAWD. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. I've been tweeting for a while that, quote, everyone is a labor reporter now, but not all labor reporters are actually doing the real work that needs to be done. That is why, of course, we have this segment, after all, to give credit to those who are doing the hard work of actually taking the labor beat seriously in an economy that still doesn't value the work that labor reporters do. And so, of course, this week, I am talking about Alex Press, who's done a great job covering the strikes at Frito-Lay and Nabisco and Kellogg and IATSE strike prep, and also has a piece up at Jacobin on one of the lesser known, but close to my whiskey drinking heart strikes going on right now, the one at Heaven Hill Distillery. The piece is titled, Workers at One of the Country's Biggest Bourbon Producers Have Been on Strike for a Month. And you will not be surprised to hear, perhaps, that workers are fighting concessions around healthcare, overtime benefits, and scheduling. Heaven Hill is one of Kentucky's largest bourbon producers, making brands like Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Henry McKenna, and Old Fitzgerald. And the workers are represented by United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, Local 23D. One of the workers said of the proposed contract, voted down in September, basically it's going to end up making us work seven days a week with no overtime pay. As Alex writes, quote, that disagreements over scheduling and overtime, the company's introduction of a non-traditional work week, provoked the strike, is in keeping with a trend among workers across the United States who, coming out of the pandemic, are pushing back on employers' control over so many of their waking hours. The issue is at the heart of a series of strikes across the food manufacturing industry by members of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers Union, BCTGM. Workers at Frito-Lay spoke of suicide shifts and Nabisco workers of 80-hour weeks. In a strike that started last week, 
workers at Kellogg's cereal plants nationwide have said that while the expansion of a two-tier system in their contracts is at the heart of their fight, their frustration is informed by the fact that some of them have worked up to 120 days straight without a day off. The issue of volatile scheduling is also central to the impending strike among IATSE members, which would be the largest private sector strike since the 74,000-person strike at General Motors in 2007. With few regulations against an employer's ability to demand mandatory overtime in the United States, the best protection against such unsustainable practices is a union to secure control over hours at the bargaining table. End quote. IATSE workers, as was discussed earlier in this show, are currently voting on whether to take a proposed deal, but the issues at the heart of all of these struggles aren't going away. Alex writes, quote, Heaven Hill workers point out that while the company is family owned and often speaks of its workers as part of the family, the proposed scheduling changes will affect their ability to see their actual families. What kind of a message does it send when a family owned company is pushing scheduling changes that make it harder for workers to support and care for their own families, said local 23D president Matt Aubrey, end quote. And in very family-like practice, the workers at Heaven Hill have had their health insurance cut off while they're on strike, and a judge has issued an injunction against the strikers, making it easier to bring in strike breakers to keep the whiskey flowing. The judge, Alex writes, in granting the order, said, quote, I'm not going to put up with chaos, end quote. We will keep you up to date on this strike as well. And in the meantime, please don't drink scab whiskey. My pick for ARG is by Cecilia Gentili in the New York Times. It's called, This is What Will Make Sex Work in New York Safer. Sex workers are used to getting lots of unwanted attention, but it's not every day that they get it from lawmakers in Albany. Somehow, not one but two dueling bills that both purport to protect sex workers are now pending before New York's legislature. Despite politicians, journalists, and social reformers constantly trying to frame sex work as a black and white moral issue, the profession has always resided in a curious liminal space in our collective psyche. Gentilly, a trans former sex worker and founder of Transgender Equity Consulting, writes candidly about how she started doing sex work in the 1980s when she says she, quote, had no other choice, unquote. Back in her home country of Argentina, she recalls, quote, as a young trans woman, I found that sex work was the only way for me to survive, but I faced constant harassment and violence, especially from La Policia. So I left my home to come to the United States, thinking things would be different. But when I got here, I had no more luck. On top of being trans, now I also struggled with being undocumented and learning English. Once again, I turned to sex work to stay afloat. Within two weeks, I was arrested walking down Washington Avenue in Miami Beach. The police laughed at me, misgendered me, and left me in a prison cell full of men, unquote. When she said she hoped things would be different in the U.S., notice she didn't mean she had hoped to switch to a different line of work. Rather, she hoped that she would be treated better as a human being. But the stigma and degradation of sex workers is sadly a global phenomenon. Politicians everywhere have attempted various schemes to curb, marginalize, or even end the sex trade, thinking that sex work is both a symptom and a cause of various social ills. This leads moral crusaders to campaign on the agenda of somehow getting rid of sex workers by arresting and imprisoning them or coercing them into leaving the industry in order to rid society of all that they represent. Gentili helped craft one of the bills in Albany, 
which would take a different, more realistic, and humane approach. It would fully decriminalize sex work, both for the workers and for the clients. Gentili stressed that sex work is, on the one hand, just a job, and on the other hand, a vocation that is freighted with thousands of years of taboos and paranoia and sexual anxiety, and that the burden of all that history today takes the form of criminalization. But, she argues, quote, We knew that the best way to help sex workers was not to decriminalize only their actions, but also those of their clients. The legal pressure that clients face is absorbed by sex workers. A smaller client base means lower wages and poorer working conditions, with clients who are more likely to act in ways that make sex workers' lives more difficult. We believe criminalization of either side of the sex trade does not help protect sex workers, but rather merely perpetuates the social stigma that treats sex work as an inherently harmful activity, a stigma that I have long worked to eradicate, unquote. The full decriminalization proposal stands in contrast to the rival bill in Albany, which would follow the so-called Nordic model, in which clients are criminalized but not the sex workers. Studies indicate that this ends up exacerbating the impacts of criminalization for the workers, often making them more vulnerable and making it harder to negotiate their working conditions. Gentili points out that New Zealand has, by contrast, lifted all criminal bars on sex work across the board, and surveys indicate that the majority of sex workers surveyed quote, found it easier to refuse clients and said police attitudes towards sex workers had improved, unquote. Gentili also makes the case for sex work as a potential social good, or at least a way to cope, and something that people are willing to do even when they don't enjoy it, just like a regular job. Quote, sex work is a service industry. We often help people with social anxiety or disability and those who are figuring out their sexuality or gender identity. Clients and coworkers who are often prosecuted as traffickers very often provide care to sex workers as well. It was a sex worker who helped me escape from a trafficking situation, not the police. It was a client who encouraged and helped me get into a drug treatment program. And it was a client who gave me my first immigration legal advice and helped me open my first bank account. I have, of course, had my share of bad clients, but even when I didn't enjoy doing it and felt I had no other options, sex work kept me alive, unquote. Of course, legislation alone would not begin to address the myriad layers of stigma and discrimination that sex workers deal with on a day-to-day basis in New York or anywhere else. But the right law could help shift social norms, at least on a local level, and persuade people that sex workers actually do want what all workers want. They want to be paid fairly for their labor. They want to be treated with kindness and respect. They want personal and bodily autonomy and to have a say in how, when, and for whom they work. They want to be seen as stakeholders in this society and people with the right to exercise some economic and political control over their lives. None of that is possible if their work is deemed by society to be a crime. But anything is possible when we stop judging people for what they do for a living and focus on helping them live their lives. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And if you'd like to support our independent journalism, please consider donating to our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash belabored. And there you can also get some excellent belabored swag designed by artist extraordinaire Molly Crabapple. And you can also support our work by buying a subscription to Descent Magazine. Don't forget to leave us a review if you enjoy our coverage. And of course, let us know if you want us to cover your workplace struggle. Get in touch if you are a John Deere worker currently on strike, or maybe you work on a film crew and you're frustrated with the latest tentative agreement that your union struck with the major studios, 
or get in touch if the pandemic made you think about walking off the job with your coworkers or even just quitting. And of course, let us know if you are trying to democratize your union. You can find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.